Welcome to the New Providence Presbyterian Church podcast, where we will share our messages from our weekend worship services. We hope these messages will inspire you and challenge you in your walk with Jesus. A book of Psalms. Yes, we've been, we've been on this extended series of the book of Psalms, sort of looking at how God wants to work with us when we're in a time of, of shifting sands. And today we come to the last, the climax, maybe even uh, the one that wraps all the other Psalms together, and you'll see why in just a moment. But before that, I want to tell you a story. Back a few weeks ago when Pastor Audrey <clears throat> asked me uh, to assist in preaching some of the, of the Psalms, it took my mind back to a few years quite a few years ago when I was pastoring a church adjacent to a major university with a lot of uh, college students in our congregation. And because we had such a high student group, we, uh, we knew we had to be creative with every worship service to keep them coming, keep them juiced for the Lord. So um, one time I did a series, uh, maybe seven, eight, on, on seven and eight of the Psalms. And I usually preach only five, six, seven verses with each message. But what I did was during the week, I not only prepared the message, but I came up with a, with a, I made up a tune by which I could sing it as well as preach it. So after I had preached it, unpacked the psalm, I would go down to the piano and I would sit there and I would sing it back to them, what they had just heard me preach. And don't worry, I'm not going to do that here. But, uh, but what I discovered over the years is some of the messages that people remembered the most with the messages that they heard not just preached, but sung. And that, that's my way of, I want to encourage you. The Psalms can take on a new meaning in your life if you start singing them. You say, well, I don't sing. And besides, what's the right tune? Well, you could use a chant approach. For example, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. You could go through the whole Psalm that way. No, you know, it's, Taylor Swift won't make it a, a popular song, I'm sure, but the fact is, it'll make that song come alive inside of you in a, in a whole new way. So that's my little uh, challenge to you this morning. I'm going to start this sermon in a little different way than you normally start a message. <clears throat> I'm going to start with a pop quiz. <laughs> I realize it's vacation time, school's almost over, this may not seem fair, but there's only two questions. So I think you can handle it, all right? Here's the first question. It goes like this. Of the panoply of evangelical doctrines, which, uh, which truth is the most overlooked and most neglected? Now, you just think about all the truths of Scripture. Which one do you think gets overlooked, gets neglected, hardly gets ever mentioned? Well, I'm not going to wait for you to figure it out. I'm going to give you the answer, and the answer is the ascension. Think with me for a moment. How many messages have you heard about Christmas and the Incarnation? How many messages have you heard about the cross? How many messages have you heard about the resurrection? How many messages have you heard about Christian living? Lots and lots of How many messages? Either in a service like this or in a class or wherever. How many times have you heard anyone teach on the ascension? And yet without the ascension, everything else is null and void. If there was not a day, like today is a day, 10 days before the day of Pentecost, we read about it in the book of Acts, when Jesus ascended before the eyes of his disciples. I don't know if he went into a fifth or sixth dimension. I don't, don't quite understand it. One theologian says he just saw on the other side of the curtain, sort of that idea. 
But he ascended. He was enthroned. He was crowned. And he sat down, as it says, at the right hand of God. If there wasn't a day when the father said to his son, son, everything you've done is for the redemption of the universe is absolutely, is all that's needed is fully uh, satisfying. I am completely happy with the work and I invite you now, come and sit on the throne of heaven and rule the universe forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. If there had not been a day like that day, then everything else would be null and void. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Let me ask you a second question, last question. Of all the Old Testament scriptures about the person of Christ, which passage is the most frequently quoted or referenced passage by New Testament writers and preachers? Now, the early church had one Bible. It's called the Hebrew Bible. We call it the Old Testament. I mean, for, for decades, what we read about in the book of Acts, basically all they had, the church had, was the Old Testament. So they would go back to the Old Testament to find passages to help them understand where they're headed in this new life in Christ. Of all those 39 books, thousands of verses, which one do you think they came back to over and over again? It's quoted or referenced in almost every epistle. Jesus referenced, uh, quoted it in relationship to himself. Do you know what the answer is? The answer is Psalm 110. And as you're about to discover, the interesting thing about Psalm 110 is it says nothing about the incarnation, nothing about the crucifixion, nothing about the resurrection. It's all about the ascension. Which means that the early church, from which we spring, as we read about it exploding across the Roman Empire there in the book of Acts, was living and breathing the rarefied atmosphere of an ascended, enthroned, and reigning Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, he ascended on high in order to fill the universe. They were living in the reality of that. And if you want to understand why the New Testament explodes in the advance of the gospel, that's the reason why. I wonder if that's the air that we breathe most of the time. Well, let's unpack this psalm a little bit. Let me read it to you, and then I'll go back and look at a few of the key ideas. It's up on the screen. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and say, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. For the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The most frequently quoted reference passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament times. Why is that? Well, let's unpack it for just a little bit. Now, remember, this was written, this was written almost a thousand years before it was fulfilled in Jesus. So now we understand the Lord saying to my Lord is the Father saying to the Son, come and sit at my right hand. What does that mean? Well, that, that was, uh, traditionally, that's the position of full authority. So when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, that's what he means. I am now sitting in a position of full authority in heaven and earth, not only for this age, but in all the ages to come. 
But there's a process going on. It's not a static rain. It's a very active rain because it says, uh, come and sit while we make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you realize every single person who has ever lived or ever will live will one day end up in the same place at the foot of Jesus? In one of two ways. We will become his footstool either in judgment or by salvation. But we'll all end up at his feet. Some resisting him, some embracing him, but all declaring Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father as we read in Philippians chapter 2. Now, who are these enemies that are become his footstool? It's all of us. We're his enemies. Originally, the Bible says that very clearly. That apart from Christ, the rebellion of our lives, of our hearts over all of our lives, has made us enemies of a living, risen, reigning Savior. We're going the opposite direction of his kingdom. But when we give our lives to him, when we are born again, when we are transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, as it says in Colossians 1, then... Enemies are transformed into his friends, and friends want to be sitting at his feet like Mary we read about in Luke when she sat at the feet of Jesus, choosing him as the one thing that was needed in her life. Remember reading that? That's where we're all headed. But it goes on and says this whole process of making God's enemies a footstool at the feet of, of the one reigning on the throne he says, you will extend your scepter and rule in the midst of your enemies. It doesn't say you'll rule over them. It says you'll rule in the midst of them. Because right now, the, the reign of Christ is not autocratic. <laughs> the reign of Christ is redemptive. And right now, he is ruling in the midst of it. He's letting his enemies go on as he moves in their midst and begins to conquer many with his scepter. And what is his scepter? Well, most scholars believe it's just a poetic way of referring to what ultimately became true, and that is the gospel of Christ. Wherever the gospel is going around the world as it has been for the last 2,000 years, and people hear and believe, and they're born into the kingdom of God and become followers of Jesus for the rest of their lives, that's the scepter doing its work among them, conquering them. You'll extend. And how do you get into the midst of his enemies? Oh, it's so easy. There are millions and millions of churches around the world. And as far as the Father's concerned, his desire for every church, including this church, is that we would be a base of operations for the advancement of the reign of Christ where we live, by our worship, by our witness, uh, by our righteous lives that we live out in the world, by our laboring for justice and other issues that are of great concern to the kingdom of God in a hundred different ways that we become his base of operations through which he carries out his work through us. And it says, when it is his day of battle, the psalm says, when it is his days of battle, his people will be willing. Uh, they will volunteer. <laughs> now, I've worked with enough churches around the world to know that one of the, the common problems every church has is finding volunteers to fill all the slots that need to be filled. Why is it so hard to get people to volunteer to do the work of Christ in one way or another? The answer very simply is this. We do not have a large enough vision of who Jesus is, of what he's up to, of where his reign is headed, of how he wins the victory, and that the victory is sure so that we get so excited about what's going on that we raise our hand and say, will you let me get involved somehow? 
His troops will be willing in his day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Now, that phrase is taken from the Old Testament. That describes the garments that the priests would wear in the temple and in the tabernacle as they served before the Lord. So now here is an army of priests. Let's call them warrior priests. And that's who you are. The Bible says more than once, you and I, we have become a kingdom of priests. We're warrior priests. What does a priest do? A priest represents people to God and represents God to people. In our case, we, we, represent, we want to bring people to Christ. We want to bring more of Christ into their lives. And that's what the battle is all about right now. And that's how the battle's won. And we get to be a part of that. Warrior priest. And notice it says that the one leading us is the ultimate warrior priest. He's after the order of Melchizedek. This one sitting on the throne is sort of like this guy, Melchizedek, that shows up in the book of Genesis for just, you know, a few verses. He's there and gone. Uh, but he is a king and he is a priest in combination, which is rather strange. Well, now, thousands of years later, here comes uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews quoting that very passage to describe Jesus in the book of Hebrews, the passage from Psalm 110. Jesus is the ultimate warrior priest, and we're part of his army. And here's a little bit of the payback. It says that at the front lines of this army will be your youth leading the way. What does that mean? The young men, it says. Well, we do know in some of the great revivals of church history, it has been the young people who've risen up and led the way into the renewal of the church, and then the rest of us old guys, we all sort of fall in behind. But I think there's more here. What this is saying is, <laughs> if you're willing to get into this battle with our warrior king, our warrior priest, and if you're willing to be a warrior priest with him and labor for the, for the transformation of the world through the advancing of the gospel, to become a base of operations, that there will come into your life a renewal, a restoration, a reinvigoration spiritually and in many other ways possibly, so that it's like your youth is restored to you, as the scripture says, like the eagle. When you get involved in the work of Christ, it doesn't drain you. It restores you. You know, there's an interesting scene uh, toward the end of the book, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. I assume most of you have read it, hundreds of millions have read it all around the world. It's in about 50 or 60 languages, written by C.S. Lewis, the first volume of his Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch, The Wardrobe. And in this story, there's a group of little children who end up breaking into an alternate universe called Narnia, and then there's all the adventures that go on. But they end up following um, a lion king, the, the king of Narnia, which in C.S. Lewis is really writing about the Christian life. He's writing about Psalm 110, as you'll see in just a moment. But he, he's, he's using this figure of a lion to represent the Lord Jesus and his kingly power. And there comes that scene toward the end of the book, if you've read it, you'll remember, where the, the wicked white witch gets gets Aslan, that's his name, the lion's name, gets Aslan on what's called the Great Stone Table. And she and her demonic minions now have finally captured him. And, and, and they're competing for who's going to rule in Narnia. But they finally captured him. Aslan's on the table. He's strapped down. And then they all plunge their daggers into him. And he's slain on that table. 
And the little children are watching this and their hearts are broken and they feel like the, the white witch's magic has finally won out. And they're turning around because they can't look anymore and they're weeping. And as they're weeping and wondering, suddenly they hear the sound of a huge crack. And they turn around. And this impenetrable uh, stone table has cracked in two and it's been destroyed. And Aslan is nowhere to be found. And as they're trying to figure out what is going on here, you know, Aslan shows up behind them and says, children, and they turn around and, well, of course, he's alive. He's alive. So then they say to him, what kind of magic do you have that's even greater than the magic of the white witch? And here's what Aslan, this is, this is C.S. Lewis putting these words in Aslan's mouth as a representative of what Jesus would say to us this morning. And it's up on the screen. Can I read it to you? He says to the children, it means that though the white witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back in the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stand, stead, that the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Psalm 110 is about the mystery that was hidden before anything was created. Remember Paul says, Christ is the mystery of God hidden from all generations but now revealed to us. And it's all about the ascension because it's only as Jesus died, rose, and ascended and cracked the table of death itself. It's only then that death can begin working back on itself. That's the advancing of his reign in our world at this hour. And it's not going to stop, brothers and sisters, until his resurrection life has penetrated everything in heaven and earth. That's where we're headed. But there's something even better. Today is Pentecost. As I said earlier, we're celebrating the beginning of the church. You remember how it was? Jesus ascended to heaven. They went back, spent time in prayer. Ten days later, they didn't know it was going to be ten days. They might have thought they are going to be praying for ten years. They had no idea. Jesus just said, wait until the Spirit comes, and then he left. So they're waiting. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, which brought people from all over the world to the city of Jerusalem, uh, Jewish uh, faithful fo followers of Judaism from many different languages and nations, they were all gathered in the city. And it was at that time, on that day, that the Spirit of God fell upon maybe 120 that were gathered there in prayer, as we read about it. And uh, there were tongues of fire. I don't think it actually means there was fire, fire. But the Spirit manifested himself so powerfully. It was like standing in front of a blazing fire. And it says that the disciples experienced a temporary miracle where they all began to speak in different languages that none of them had ever spoken in before so that all the different people gathered from all around the world could hear what was said about the glorious work that God had done in his Son and hear it in their own language. Until finally, Peter stands up as we read in Acts chapter 2, and on behalf of the whole crowd, he finally, 
I don't know if it was in Hebrew or Aramaic, but he had to use this one language. But he finally stood up, and he tried to explain what was happening. And that was, that was the very first sermon ever preached at the beginning of the, of the Christian church. But what's really fascinating is that he's heading a beeline for the ascension on that very first message. So let me read to you, and you'll see it up on the screen, um, some of the last words he preached in that sermon when he said, this is Acts chapter 2, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this one thing. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, made him both Lord and Messiah. Now, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to the Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? <laughs> we often read that, what shall we do to be saved? That's not what they asked. They asked, what shall we do? In other words, Peter confronted them with the ascension. And if you read through his whole message, he never preaches the incarnation. He only mentions the cross by saying he was crucified. He mentions the resurrection, but only as it ties into the ultimate end of the resurrection, which is the ascension. His main message is the coronation, the enthronement of the Son of God to be Lord and Messiah forever. And when they said, what must we do? They're basically saying, oh my word, this is who he is. What's our next move? What do we do now that we understand who he really is? Now, here's the thing that's even better than what I shared with you earlier. Peter says in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, watch this, that when Jesus ascended and sat on the throne, the evidence that he had taken up authority in the universe was that from that throne, from the ascended one, was poured out the Holy Spirit upon God's people so that they could see and hear what they saw and heard. Now, I'm going to offer you something right now that's going to simplify the entire New Testament for you. If you remember this, it's going to change the way you read any verse you ever read about the Holy Spirit, and there's lots of them. The third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, who was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Because years ago, as I looked at all the verses of the New Te Testament about the Holy Spirit, you can, you can put them all together, and they come out to just one simple statement. The role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to be the extension of the ascension. The gifts of the Spirit is just the Spirit pouring out the life of Jesus through us, the, the, uh, or the ministry of Jesus through us. The fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit pouring out through us the life of Jesus. The empowering of the Spirit in our lives is to help us move forward in the work of Christ, in the advance of the kingdom, equipping us, empowering us, transforming us. It's like Jesus sitting on the throne of the universe, invading your life, invading this congregation. This is the great truth that the people of God need to hear. 
If the churches across this land understood, first of all, who Jesus is, secondly, what he's up to, thirdly, that the victory is sure, and fourth, that everything is advancing in that direction so that they would want to be a part of it. If they understood all of that and then understood that the Spirit has been given to the people of God to extend the work of Christ's ascension right into our very lives, if the churches across this nation really understood that truth, this nation would not be where it is today. Nor would your life or mine be where it is today. Another way to say this, oh, this gives me goosebumps anytime I say it. I don't know if it will for you. But God invites us to experience the ascended life of the ascended one. When Paul said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ, now watch it, Christ is his title. Christ, Christos, the anointed one, means he's been anointed. That's, that's the ascension. That's a, that, Christ is ascension language. The one who's been anointed to be Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. Lord and Messiah, sitting on the throne. So when Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, who is this Jesus living in me? King of kings, Lord of lords, living in me. And then he goes on to say, therefore the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You and I are invited to enjoy, to experience the ascended life of the ascended one individually, but also together as the people of God. And if we can break through into that understanding and begin to live in that reality, everything will be transformed in the process, guaranteed well, I'm supposed to end according to custom. I'm supposed to end every message with something to do. So I'm going to give you three things to do. And just for one week, you can take it or leave it, obviously. But just for one week, something to do that uh, I'd like you to do at the beginning of each morning for seven days and uh, see, uh, see what happens. You know, they said, brothers, what, what shall we do? I'm hoping somebody out there is saying, okay, David, what should we do? <laughs> And if you are, then there are, these are my three suggestions. At least consider them. Number one, for the next seven mornings, when you wake up, maybe before you get out of bed, maybe after you've had your cup of coffee, but every morning for the next seven days, when you wake up, I want you to sing the praises of our ascended Christ. And it's very easy. You take the tune, oh, come let us adore him, and just change the word, you are the king of glory, and it goes like, you just wake up and you say, you are the king of glory. You are the king of glory. You are the king of glory. And then it changed just a little bit. Jesus, my Lord, begin your day, first thing out of your mouth, praising our ascended Savior just for who he is. Then the second thing would follow right on the heels of that. You'll see it up on the screen is follow that course by inviting the Spirit to increase in you that day a deeper experience of the ascended life of the ascended one. Just, just to increase it a little bit. You're, you've just praised him for who he is. Now invite the Spirit to bring that reality more directly and deeply into your life that day than you had experienced it the day before. Are you willing to do that? To take the chance to give him that kind of invitation. So you've sung his praises for being king. You've invited him to bring the extension of that ascension into your life by the power of the Holy Spirit.
And the third thing is going to be the weirdest, and you may find this impossible to do. But the next thing you do is you go and you find a mirror. It could be uh, in your bathroom or in bedroom, out in the hallway, I don't know. You've sung, you've prayed. Now, go and stand in front of a mirror for 30 seconds. <laughs> I've done this lots. <laughs> stand in front of the mirror for 30 seconds and look at the person on the other side looking back at you and be like a little child and for 30 seconds pretend that that's not you looking back at you, that that is Jesus looking back at you. Because, dear friends, that's how close he is to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you're looking for in what you prayed just a moment ago. And here's the final fact. That's your destiny for the rest of eternity. Someone to say to me, what is our destiny? I would say it this way, very simply. It's to grow in intimacy with Christ in his supremacy, to become his footstool. This is where we're headed. This will be going on 10,000 years from now. There'll never be more of him. There'll never be a place where there's no more of him to know. There will always be a working of the Spirit, even in the ages to come, where he's drawing us, drawing us, drawing us deeper and deeper into Christ. So, and can you believe this? This could actually be the heart of our salvation, that we could have intimacy with the king of the universe as if he was standing right in front of us, face to face, forever and ever. It can begin today.